0: When we last saw Jesus, at the end of chapter 2, Jesus was 12 years old, and 18 years have now passed, and we have no record in the Bible of what Jesus was like in his teens and 20s, which to me is, is really interesting, right? We don't, we don't know what happened, so we, we know about the story in the temple And then we get all the way to today's um, story with absolutely no information about what Jesus did for 18 years. But we are left to assume, I think this is a safe assumption based on little things, little hints, that Jesus had a very normal life for those 18 years. He lived in a small town He worked with his father, Joseph. He had dinner with his family. He attended synagogue with them. Those are the things that we can safely assume. And then at age 30, Jesus visits his cousin, John, uh, whom we talked about last week, at the Jordan River. And that's where we're going to begin reading. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. It says now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens were opened and the holy spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased Now, I want to start by asking a question. Why was Jesus baptized? We sang earlier, uh, referencing baptism, and there is a fountain. We sang the words, you know, washed all my sins away, right? And when the people went out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, that was an act of repentance, But Jesus didn't need to repent of anything. So why was he baptized? In the Gospel of John, um, John tells us that this moment was when Jesus was revealed to Israel. So this was the beginning of his public ministry, when he stopped being just a small-town carpenter and became something else. And so you've got the voice of heaven, the voice from heaven. You've got the descending of the Holy Spirit. And so that makes this really obvious. There's something special about Jesus. But his baptism also symbolized something. Okay, So when the other people went into the water, it symbolized that they were being cleansed by the water as if their sins were being washed away. But for Jesus, it was actually the opposite. Jesus was already clean, and so Jesus then was baptized into water that had been symbolically polluted by the sins of the people. So they go in to get clean, symbolically. Jesus went in to get dirty by their sins. This is why Jesus refers to a second baptism in Luke 12. He's thinking of the cross. And so this baptism by John in the Jordan River, this is the moment when Jesus is essentially demonstrating his commitment to take our place. That at that second baptism on the cross, that's the moment when Jesus literally took on the sins of his people and fell under the curse of God. And so the baptism of Jesus preaches the gospel to us. We go in the water, so to speak, to become clean, but it only works because Jesus went in the water to get dirty. The baptism of Jesus demonstrates that. And so I want you to notice Jesus is baptized and then it says immediately after he does this, immediately after he symbolically identifies with his people through baptism, that's when the Father speaks and blesses him. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And we've been talking about this. You get a sense of the relationship that they have. And we're going to see it all through the Gospel of Luke. There's a relationship between Jesus and the Father and even the Holy Spirit, which is going to be really, really like laser focused throughout this Gospel. And you have all three together in this moment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when the Father speaks, what does He say to Jesus? He really says three things. He says, You're my Son. I love you. And I'm proud of you. You're my Son. I love you. And I'm proud of you. These are really the best words that a son can hear from his father, words that I actually think that we were designed to it, that you need to hear as a child from your father, right? You're mine. You come from somewhere. I claim you. You belong to this family. I love you. I'm committed to you. I will never leave nor forsake you. You will never stop being my child. And I'm pleased with you. I'm proud of you. I'm delighted in who you are. And you know, in an imperfect way, this is how I feel about my children. And depending on your experience with your earthly father, this may make sense and it may not. You may have a terrible relationship with your earthly father. Your father may have never said these things to you. And so it may be a good example, it may not be, but, but y'all, the father and Jesus, the relationship that they have, it's absolutely perfect. It's everything it's supposed to be. Their relationship is perfect and it's eternal. And this is how Jesus began his ministry. With the perfect blessing of his father falling upon him. And then immediately after Jesus committed himself to this mission of reconciliation, that's when when it comes. That's when God gives it to him. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. So 30 was the age of public service in ancient Israel. So he was 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Why does he say as was supposed? Because he's really the son of the Holy Spirit, of God, right? Of The Father. So Joseph was just like his stand-in dad, right? the son of Heli. And now we're going to cycle through these names on the screen. I'm not going to read all of them because I would butcher half of them, but this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Luke traces it uh, back from Joseph to David. So let's go on to um, verse 24. So starting with, uh, and I'm not even going to try to say that name. So as I said, we're just going to cycle through these. So 25, just kind of glance at these names. Um, most of them we don't know anything about except that they appear in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, so verse 25, Matt. Uh, verse 26, 27, 28, 29. 30, yeah, see, uh, 31. Some of these names are repeated because they were different generations, same name. Then we get to David, okay? So verse 31, David, that's a familiar name. That's King David, okay? And then from David, it goes back from David all the way to Adam. So 32, 33, 34. 35, 36, 37, and 38. All right, all the way back. Seth, son of Adam, son of God. That's it. So it's worth mentioning that Luke's genealogy is a little different from Matthew's. Okay, so if you were to actually open up Matthew 1 and compare it to Luke chapter 3, um, they're different. And there are some. There's several good explanations for why that might be. Um, both of them are accurate, okay? So they, they both, you know, are true representations of Jesus' family true. Um, but it, you can actually typically trace lineages in multiple different ways. And so what, what Luke is doing, we think, is tracing his lineage back to David two different ways. And so that's not uncommon. Um, it is possible, but it leaves no doubt, essentially, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And there are lots of views on that. You can look them up in your spare time if you're really interested. But I want you to notice that Luke actually takes it further. Matthew stops with um, uh, David, I believe, or no, Abraham. But he, uh, Luke takes it all the way back to Adam, showing that Jesus was actually the promised Savior of Genesis 3. So he goes all the way back to the beginning. And so, and in, in what he's trying to do, what Luke's trying to show us in more ways than one, is that Jesus was both the Son of Man and the Son of God. In fact, there are exactly 77 names listed in Luke's genealogy, okay? Which is biblical, you know, Bible lingo for perfect number of generations. Okay, 77 all the way back. It's also significant that Luke begins with Jesus and works his way backward all the way to Adam, and that's how chapter 3 ends, and then immediately in chapter 4 is the story that we're going to read next week, which is the temptation of Jesus... in the the wilderness by Satan. And Luke wants us to see the connection between Adam and Jesus. Now, if you remember, Luke was um, someone who traveled with, with Paul and was involved in that ministry. Paul is going to later teach that Jesus is the second Adam. So, just as the first Adam became the representative head of all mankind in our sin, Jesus is the second Adam. He's the representative head of the new covenant of grace. And so, Luke is actually showing us this connection that he's explaining the mission of Jesus in two ways Jesus's connection to humanity and God through both his baptism and his connection to humanity and God through his genealogy, Okay, I know that everything I just said is super technical, Okay, And uh, I I understand that looking at a bunch of names is a little boring, which is why I didn't read all of them. But this is incredibly significant. And I want you to think about what this means. God did not choose to save humans in some disconnected way. God embedded his salvation right into the fabric of humanity. God wrote the story of this world and put Jesus right in the middle of history. Do you understand what this means? Is that Jesus was born into an actual family tree? I want you to think about this with me. Okay, Now some of you some of you may know a lot about your family tree. Maybe you got one of those accounts on Ancestry.com and, you know, I've got an uncle that's done all the research and I, I enjoy looking at it from time to time. Some of you may know a lot about where you came from. Some of you may know very, very little, but there's something that we all have in common. Everybody in this room, we all have this in common. If you knew the stories of your ancestors, you would find some people who did some great things, and you would find some people who did some really terrible things. (laughs) Every single one of us. I mean, there's a lot of generations back there, right? A lot of crazy uncles. A lot of weird people in everybody's family tree. Every single one of us has got some just really strange stories, and some of them did some good things. But we would be shocked and embarrassed if we knew some of the people that we came from. And that's true for all of us. And perhaps our ancestors would be shocked and embarrassed if they knew some of the things that we've done (laughs) in our lifetime, right, to contribute to our family tree. But I want you to consider the family tree of Jesus. Among those names that we just kind of glanced at, there are cowards and liars. There are murderers and adulterers. There are criminals and scoundrels. And we don't know most of their stories, but I guarantee you, because they were sinners, there's some really crazy stuff. Some of them, yes, did some great things. Absolutely. Some of those same men also did some really terrible things. And they're listed in the family tree of Jesus. I want you to consider this morning that God chose that family. Now, none of us had the opportunity to choose the family we were born into, right? Jesus was the only person in history who had that choice, who was able to look at the whole of history and say, I'm putting myself right there. That's where I want to be. It showed Something about the heart of God. And it should be amazing to us that God chose to do this at all, right? We should marvel at the fact that the God who created the universe, who created humans, chose to be born into human history. He had a family, He had parents, He had siblings. He had grandparents, they had stories, and a home, and a culture, a language, and traditions. Jesus grew up with all of this. But he also had a perfect connection to his Father in heaven because Jesus was fully human, And fully God. And and Luke shows us this by placing the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus side by side. We call this the doctrine of the incarnation. And it's one of the greatest mysteries of our faith. Um, Some of you know and have seen that we have chickens in our backyard, we have ten beautiful birds. Nine hens and one unexpected rooster. We have Americanas, we have Easter Eggers, and we have silver-laced Wyandots. And I actually really enjoy watching the chickens. They're funny birds, right? The way they walk, the way they scratch the ground looking for things to eat, the noises that they make, the way they jerk their heads around when they're looking at you, right? I enjoy watching the chickens. We raise them from baby chicks. We do our best to protect them, to care for them, to feed them. But y'all, I would never consider giving up my humanity to become a chicken. I would never trade my air-conditioned house for a smelly chicken coop. I would never give up steak and pizza and tacos for chicken feed. And yet, me trading places with a chicken is far less of a downgrade than God becoming human. Jesus gave up heaven to become one of us. And that's not even the worst of it. Okay, So to to paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, Jesus had been living for all eternity in the perfect loving presence of the Father, and he left that to be cast into a furnace for people who didn't love him back. He yielded Himself to the crushing weight of God's wrath for people who had no love for Him, people who were His enemies. And y'all, we deserve no union with Christ and never did and never will do anything to earn that kind of relationship with God. We can't earn the right to be part of God's family anymore then a chicken could earn the right to become human. I know that's a silly illustration, but I want you to grasp how crazy and mysterious it is that God wrote the story this way. Because he did. He wrote it in such a way that we have to see that our only hope was that Jesus chose to do something that makes no sense to become like us he's created things for us and there are several reasons why this matters because okay, so this is the application part of the sermon okay number 1 it means that god is accessible he's not just up there somewhere He came down. Jesus made God accessible to us. And as we study the life of Jesus, you understand we're seeing God, what He's like, who He he is, what His heart for us is like. It's the best way for us to know what God is like is to study the life of Jesus. He makes God accessible to us. Number two, it means that God really understands us. Now, God didn't have to do this to understand us. We should have never doubted that God, our creator, understands us. I mean, he, he knows us better than we know ourselves because he created us. But apparently what it shows us is that he's very patient and humble as well so much so that he was willing to show us how much he understands the human experience by becoming like us. I love this quote by Dorothy Sayers, and hopefully I put this up there. Yeah. Uh, God can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work, lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth his while. So he makes God accessible. He understands us. Number three, it means that Jesus is the only way that we can get right with God. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus because he's both. There's a whole lot of theology and a lot of mystery wrapped up in this, but that's that's how salvation works, is because Jesus is somehow both. And so if you want a relationship with God, you have to enter into it through Jesus. You have to know Jesus. And then finally... I want you to consider what that means. When you become united to Christ by faith in His death and resurrection, you also become a child of God. Okay? And what that means, this is very, very, very important. What that means brothers and sisters, is that how God feels about Jesus is how God feels about you. Because you're united to Jesus. Do you understand? It's what the Father said to Jesus that, that afternoon, that day, in the Jordan River. By faith in Christ... The Father also says to you, because you're united to Jesus, the Father looks at you in Him and He says to you, I love you. You're mine. And I'm proud of you. So, if you only reduce salvation to kind of a mathematical formula of he washed all my sins away, right? I said the sinner's prayer. I'm good. You're thinking of God as somewhere way up there just kind of with a chalkboard scratching off names. And you're missing the point. It's so much more than that. In Jesus, He looks at you and He says, You're mine. I love you. I'm proud of you. And I will be your father. And you will be my child. And I will dwell with you. And you will dwell with me forever. And this, brothers and sisters, this is what we are actually hungry for in the deepest part of our soul. We want to know that we are truly loved by our Creator, that He claims us as His children, that He is proud of us. And that can be true of you, but only in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so needy, so desperate for encouragement. And no matter what the circumstances in our lives, no matter what the issues we face, no matter the the anxiety that we feel, the depression that we feel, the the weight of suffering on our backs, the, the unknowns, the uncertainty, the things that we don't have answers for that we can't control, You see all of it, and the most important answer you're giving us is is this, that by faith in Christ, we become united to Him, and all of our fears, and all of our doubts, and all of our struggles are answered there in the hope that we have because we're united to Christ. And that He came to earth and that He entered into this baptism with us, dirtying Himself so that we might become clean and even that we might become loved. That we might experience the kind of relationship with the Father that that He has. That's what He wants for us. That's why He came pray that we would know it, that we would experience it, that it would forever change us. And if there's somebody here today that's never felt that before, I pray that today they would leave different because you've revealed it, that you've made it known to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand second. Amen.